God's steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever. This is very obviously the central idea in Psalm 136. God's love never falters nor fails. God's love never ends. If you've been here when Pastor Chris Powell from Toronto is preaching, you've probably heard the Hebrew word which is translated here as steadfast love. Though I don't think I can pronounce it quite like Pastor Chris. A simplified pronunciation of the word is hesed. Steadfast love is a good translation. And covenant faithfulness would be another good way of bringing it across into English. And thus, Pastor Chris often defines hesed as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Which incidentally he's borrowed from the Jesus Storybook Bible. The central idea in this psalm is obvious and quite straightforward. God's steadfast love, or has said, endures forever, and we should thank Him for it. We're told explicitly in verses 1 to 3 to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. We're told explicitly to give thanks again in verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. But the command or the invitation to give thanks is actually implied through the whole psalm. It is the implied statement that would come at the beginning of each and every verse if the psalmist wrote it out explicitly. In other words, if the psalmist stated it rather than implied it, verse 4 would begin, Give thanks to Him who alone does great wonders. Verse 5 would begin, Give thanks to Him who by His understanding made the heavens. And so on and so forth. You can see that these are sentence fragments. If I just walked up to you on the street and said, To Him who alone does great wonders. That's not a complete thought. What's implied in each and every one of these verses is give thanks. If I walked up to you on the street and said, Give thanks to Him who alone does great wonders. That would be an intelligible message. You might ask me, well, who is it who alone does great wonders? And the conversation would continue. But to simply walk up and say, to him who alone does great wonders wouldn't make any sense. So there's something not explicitly stated which makes the thought whole. And that thing which is not explicitly stated, that thing which is implied, is give thanks. So this whole psalm really is about giving thanks to God. For his steadfast love endures forever. There are three portraits of God painted in this psalm. We see the same God from three different angles in this psalm. And as we look at God from each perspective that the psalm gives us, we're invited to give thanks to him for his steadfast love. The three portraits are God as he is, God as creator, and God as redeemer. Let's begin by looking at God as He is, that we might find grounds to thank Him for His steadfast love. We see first in this psalm, in verses 1 to 3, something of God's essential glory. He is glorious. When we say that He is glorious, we don't mean merely that He has done glorious things though He certainly has done glorious things. God is essentially glorious. It's part of who He is. He is inherently glorious. He did not become glorious by doing what He has done. He already was glorious before He ever did anything. 
So in history, God has not become glorious. In history, God has manifested or revealed His glory. The glory which has eternally belonged to Him. So look at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He is good. Not He became good when He did such and such a thing. Or He acted in a good way when He did such and such a thing. He is good. It is essential to Him. It is what God is. It is who God is. He is a good God. This goodness is intrinsic to Him. Good is what God is when no one's looking. Good is what God is when no one hears His voice. Good is what God is when no one notices what He does. It's who God was before there was anyone to see, hear, and notice Him. Just as the blindness of a man doesn't change the inherent brightness of the sun, nor the relative distance to the sun doesn't change its inherent warmth, so the failure of mankind to notice and appreciate God's goodness doesn't change the fact that He is good. So someone might be in the Antarctic in a cold, dark season of the year where the sun maybe barely crests the horizon and goes back down again. It's 23 and a half hours of darkness. And he might say, the sun got colder. And you might laugh and say, the sun doesn't get colder. It's your perception of it, your experience of it, which has changed. The sun is inherently hot. Just as someone might lose their sense of sight and might say the sun has darkened and no longer shines as bright as it once did. And you might say, that's a foolish thought. The sun is just as bright as it ever has. As, as just as bright as it ever has been. It's your eyes which have changed. So it is with God's goodness. His God's, good, God's goodness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is good. He hasn't grown. He hasn't developed to become better. You can't become better than the best. God is inherently good. Even if no one was there to see, to hear, to observe, to perceive, to benefit, God is good. And He is incomparably good. He is, as verses 2 and 3 say, the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Someone might grant that Yahweh is one good being among other equally good beings. Polytheists, those who believe in multiple gods, or religious relativists, those who believe in more than one true religion, might say that God is one good being among many equally good beings. But listen here, the Bible entertains no such notions. The Bible is quite clear that there is no God but God. There is no Lord but the Lord. Sure, there are lesser beings who can wield some limited authority permitted them by God. And these are sometimes called by us gods or lords. But they are lesser beings. Our God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is an eternal being as opposed to a temporal being who came into existence at some point. God is an eternal being. God is an infinite being as opposed to a finite being. God is an omnipresent or everywhere present being as opposed to a spatially located being. God is an omniscient or all-knowing being as opposed to those beings who investigate and learn. God is a simple being as opposed to beings composed of pre-existent parts. God is the very definition of goodness as opposed 
to other beings who are at best mere instances of goodness. There is no God like ours. There is no Lord like ours. He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is good. This is who our God is. And in view of this intrinsic goodness, the goodness that He is, what a shock it is to learn in Scripture that He has entered into relationship with mankind. The psalmist wonders in Psalm 8 and verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? The 1689 Confession of Faith, which we hold in this church, says in chapter 7 and paragraph 1, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. This good God who exists, assay, that is in and of himself, who needs relationship with no one outside of himself, is dependent upon no one outside of himself. He wants relationship with us. And he voluntarily condescended to that end, to be in covenantal relationship to human beings. There's a popular contemporary worship song which says, among other things, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Think about it. That's true. That's true. God doesn't need us in heaven. God is dependent upon no one. God was not lonely in heaven. God is not a needy God who just was up there in eternity in an empty house, so to speak, and just felt like He would be fulfilled if He had us. But listen, God does not need us, but He wants us. That's obvious from His decree to condescend in order to enter into a relationship with us, His creatures. It's obvious from that fact that God wants a relationship with us. And so, as the song says, He brought heaven down. He came to us, condescending as our confession puts it. He who is this glorious, good God, God of gods and Lord of lords in Himself, according to verses 1 to 3, has entered into covenantal relationship with mankind. Oh, give thanks then. Give thanks to that God. Give thanks for that covenant love. Give thanks for that steadfast love with which He has condescended to be in relationship to us. Oh, give thanks to that God. But not only is God in Himself glorious, not only is He something in Himself worth giving thanks for, but He has also, as verse 4 says, done great wonders. And the first of the great wonders that He has done in this psalm is creation ex nihilo, or from nothing. The next portrait that we see of God after looking at God as He is in Himself. He's God as Creator. In verses 5 through 9, the psalmist explores God's work of creation. In verse 5, he says, By understanding, He made the heavens. Haven't we all at some point just looked up and been astounded at the universe we live in? Whether staring into the clear blue sky during the daytime or into the star-flecked blackness of the night, 
the universe above us. And as we know, in fact, all around our globe is cause for wonder and awe. It's self-evident that there is a creator. And as Romans 1 says, it's self-evident that there is divine power. Only a powerful being could put together this universe that we live in, that we see from our vantage point when we look up. And this passage remarks on the divine understanding, which must be necessary alongside power in order to create such a universe. There's that saying that some people are like a bull in a china shop. There may be power, but there's not understanding. If God were a bull in a china shop, He might have the might, the power to unfold a universe like this. But before long, stars would be crashing into one another and everything would be coming out of orbit and it would be absolute chaos. We see then when we look at the universe, not only raw power, but understanding. Only an understanding God could create something like the heavens which surround earth. Consider how he has spread out the earth above the waters, verse 6. What an ecosystem we have here on earth. It's broken by sin, to be sure. But the atmosphere, sufficient for all life, the plenitude, which if it were distributed properly, again, sufficient for all life. Functionality. Blended with jaw-dropping beauty. As it is in the heavens above, so it is here. Functionality and beauty. Awe-inspiring. An awe-inspiring display of God. Woven into creation. What a work. Yes, as verse 7 says, God made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. Maintaining suitable temperature for our planet. Contributing to processes such as the water cycle our photosynthesis, and simply just putting a smile on our faces, like when you wake up and it's a sunny day. With the moon and stars to rule over the night, again, giving sufficient darkness that our biological processes, our circadian rhythms, can operate properly. And we can dip into a sleep. And yet there's enough light that those who have to be awake or happen to be awake can have some functionality. They serve as a basis also for navigation. Functionality and beauty just throughout this universe that we live in. God has done a wonderful job as creator in His grounds for worship. God's work of creation is most certainly, as verse 4 says, a great wonder. And it's implied in this psalm, but not stated explicitly, that as God has created, so He preserves His work of creation. In verse 25, we read the explicit statement that He gives food to all flesh. And that's a statement that is something like the part standing for the whole. It speaks to His preservation. It's not as if God has just woven this world together and then walked away from it. Or as some people have said, established it like a, like a mechanical clock, wound it up and then just walked away. God is involved in the day-to-day, even giving of food to every creature. The assumption of this psalm, though it's not stated so directly, is that as God has created, so He preserves. As Acts 17 verse 28 says, in Him we live and move and have our being. So God has both created and by virtue of the covenant that He made with Noah, continues to preserve the creation until all the promises that He has made come to full fruition. And for this creation and preservation, again, according to the psalmist, we are to thank Him. 
for his steadfast love, for every day sustaining us, for every day preserving us. Give thanks to God for his steadfast love. Now we come thirdly, after looking at God as he is, and after looking at God as creator, we come thirdly to the final portrait of God painted here by the psalmist. God as Redeemer. God made promises to the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, which are primarily in view here. God's gracious said, His steadfast love toward Israel is seen in three categories throughout the rest of the psalm. There is God's steadfast love toward Israel shown as vengeance upon her oppressors. Look at verse 10. Who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Look at verse 15. Who overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Verses 17 through 20. He struck down great kings, killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Do you recognize that part of God's steadfast love to His people in the Old Covenant was to execute vengeance upon her enemies, was to protect them, was to preserve them. It was God's steadfast love which killed the firstborn son in Egypt. It was God's steadfast love which drowned Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. It was God's steadfast love which defeated Sihon and Og, and by implication their armies. It wasn't just the king alone who marched out against them. It was God's steadfast love for His people which was revealed, which was manifest in the destruction of Israel's enemies. Vengeance. Then God's steadfast love was shown in rescue. Taking away, which we could define as the taking away of something bad. Of course, Pharaoh and his army and the armies of Sihon and Og were bad things that God took away. So there's an overlap with what I just said. But also if you look at 11 and 12, bringing Israel out from Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, dividing the Red Sea in two, making Israel pass through the midst of it. None of these are acts of vengeance per se in and of themselves bringing Israel out, splitting the Red Sea. It's not necessarily an act of vengeance. God wasn't taking vengeance upon the Red Sea when he split it in two. And yet it was an act of rescue. So some acts of rescue are acts of vengeance, as when God drowned Pharaoh's army and defeated the armies of Sihon and Og. But not all of God's acts of rescue are acts of vengeance, per se. But God takes away bad things from his people pulls his people out of bad situations rescues them from bad situations he as verse 23 and 24 say remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes and then the third category of God acting as redeemer this portrait of God as redeemer that the psalmist paints in this psalm is that of preservation and nurture not only does he take vengeance upon Israel's enemies not only does he rescue the Israelites from bad situations but he preserves and nurtures them which we could define as if rescue is taking away something bad preservation or nurture might be adding something good verse 16 To him who led his people through the wilderness. The emphasis here in this verse is on leading, not wilderness. We're meant here to recall 
not the fact that Israel was in the wilderness so much as the fact that while they were in the wilderness, God provided manna and quail and water from the rock. We are meant here to recall that as Deuteronomy 29 and verse 5 tells us, neither the clothes they wore nor the shoes on their feet wore out in all their wilderness wanderings. As they were making their way through the wilderness, God was leading them. And after leading them through the wilderness, God brought them into the land that he promised them. Verses 21 and 22. He gave the land of Sihon and Og as their, as their heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. So that's what Psalm 136 is, primarily. It's the psalmist rehearsing the facts about God as he has dealt with Israel, painting three portraits of God, viewing the same God from different angles. God as He is, God as Creator, and God as Redeemer. And the psalmist finds ample opportunity in view of who God is in Himself, in view of who God is as Creator, in view of God as He is a Redeemer to the people of Israel. The psalmist finds ample opportunity to thank God for His steadfast love. And he urges those to whom he's writing this psalm to with him give thanks to God for his steadfast love which endures forever. So what does this have to do with us in the new covenant? Well certainly we first need to realize that God as he is is one and the same God as the God of Israel. As you read that first and larger portion of the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, you need to know that that God is your God. And everything that you see about who He is in that section of Scripture is true of Him today. For our God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so everything that the psalmist says here about God as He is was true then and is true now. And so we have just the same grounds to worship God for who He is. He is good. He is good. And He is the God of gods. And He is the Lord of lords. Now as He was yesterday. And today, tomorrow rather, as He will be today. Second, we should recognize that the psalmist's creator is also our creator. And continues to preserve us and our world just as He did the ancient world. And so, in these two ways... The psalmist's portrait of God as He is and the psalmist's portrait of God as Creator. In these two ways, the psalm is directly applicable to us. We have that same God who is as He is, as He was, as He evermore shall be, the same God. And we have the same Creator, of course, as inhabitants of the same world. It's a different time, but not a different world. And so the, so the creator of the psalmist world is the creator of ours also. So in these two ways, the psalm is directly applicable to us. So give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love manifest to us in, as He is coming into relationship with us. As He is entering into a relationship with His creation. And as He is, pardon me, and as our creator bringing us into existence in the first place. And then by virtue of the covenant made with Noah, preserving this world until all His promises come to pass. In those two ways, it's a direct application to us. Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. But what does Israel's story have to do with us? What does the exodus from Egypt, what does the defeat of Sihon and Og 
and so on have to do with us. Perhaps your heart does not intuitively sing when you read verses 19 and 20. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan. Perhaps if you've read this psalm before in your devotions, those two verses didn't just jump out at you and say, Yes! God has defeated Sihon and Og. I am nourished for the day. Because I know that my God has brought Sihon and Og low before the Israelites. What do these details have to do with us in the New Covenant? Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, recalls a time that he first began to learn about the unity of the biblical message. Allow me a lengthy quote. Keller says, I'll never forget, nearly 40 years ago, sitting in R.C. Sproul's living room in Stallstown, Pennsylvania. Alec Motier, a British Old Testament scholar I had never heard of, was visiting. I was on the floor with a bunch of other college and seminary students, and Sproul said to Motier, tell us about the connection between the Old and New Testaments. Motier replied something like this, think about it. Think of what an Israel would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst. And he will stay with us until we arrive home. Then Motir added, That's exactly what a Christian says. Almost word for word. When the Old Testament people of God rehearse their story. It was different from ours only in degree. If the psalmist then looked at God and saw God as He is, gracious, benevolent, good, desirable, and gave thanks to Him for who He is and for His gracious condescension to us and the things that He gives us all in common grace. If the psalmist did these things, how much more should we who live under a covenant that is similar but better? We experience the same types of things as Old Testament Israel did, just to a fuller degree. Recall the three aspects of God's redeeming work recounted in this psalm, which I highlighted just a few moments ago. Vengeance, rescue, provision. We experience these same things, just to a fuller degree. God in Christ has acted for us also as a redeemer. At the cross, God in Christ took vengeance upon our adversary, the accuser of the brethren, dealing him a mortal blow. As Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Or Hebrews 2.14, which tells us that the intent of the cross was, in part, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Finally, Jesus teaches us that there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. God in Christ acts as our Redeemer, taking vengeance upon our demonic enemies. And Romans 12, 19 speaks of God's vengeance upon our human enemies. 
Though God doesn't always execute His vengeance here and now upon our human enemies, we are assured in Scripture that He will. Those who hate Christ and His gospel, and who, unlike Saul who persecuted the church, unlike him, those who never repent, who continue hating Christ and His people, who mock and scoff, and who torment us in varying ways here and now, will one day experience the vengeance of God. It's a sobering thought. But that's part of His steadfast love towards us. It means that we're not always, as His people, going to be drawing the short end of the stick, so to speak. We're not always going to be the butt of the joke. We're not always going to be the nail while someone else is the hammer. God is going to rescue us from our oppressors. God is going to take vengeance upon our enemies. Christ shall return to save those who are waiting for Him and to take vengeance upon those who have set themselves against Him and His people. And God in Christ has rescued us As the Israelites were enslaved, so were we. As we come up about, against impossible situations as the Israelites did at the Red Sea, so do we. As the Israelites had battles to fight, as with Sihon and Og, so do we. And we need rescue, as they did. God in Christ has rescued us, who are slaves to sin. just as the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Romans 6, verses 20 to 23, draw on this image and tell us that Christ has set us free. God in Christ, after setting us free from our slavery, has rescued us from an impossible situation as He did for the Israelites when they were up against the Red Sea. For us, God devised a way to justly clear the guilty. To justly forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And it was by the life of His Son who lived righteously for us. And the death of His righteous Son who deserved not to die Himself, but voluntarily went in our place to take the penalty that we deserve. That's how God worked out an impossible situation. That's how God justly cleared the guilty. That's how God justly forgave iniquity and transgression and sin. Without the cross, we were up against the Red Sea with no way forward. And in that way, the parting of the curtain into the Holy of Holies parallels the parting of the Red Sea. For we were up against an impenetrable barrier, no way into God's presence. Just as the Israelites were up against an impenetrable barrier, no way across the sea. There was no way we could do it for ourselves just as there was no way they could do it for themselves. But God in Christ spread something into so that we could go through. He opened up a way. And now, by the Spirit, we war not against flesh and blood like Sihon and Og, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we war against our own sin. But God in Christ will drop these enemies before us as He did Sihon and Og before the children of Israel. What does Jesus say? Take heart. He has overcome the world. And now, by the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the world.
the flesh. So God in Christ acts as our Redeemer, taking vengeance upon our enemies and rescuing us from danger. God in Christ acts as our Redeemer, finally, in providing for us, as He did for the Israelites. As they pass through the wilderness, so we are passing through a wilderness of our own. We are in a wilderness, to be sure. So much evil, so much sin all around us. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. There's bad company all over the place, isn't there? In our families, in our circles of friends, in our workplaces. There's bad company. There are so many temptations to sin. Occasion not always by other people per se, but even just ideologies that so pervade our culture and yet are antithetical to the truth of the scripture. There's the danger of imbibing wrong thinking. There's a drought as in a desert of biblical truth. And then we have even as we've already mentioned several times this morning, an enemy of our souls who has been struck a mortal blow for whom an eternal fire prepared for him and his angels is waiting, but who has not gone there yet. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We are in a wilderness, to be sure, but there's manna, and there's quail, And there's water from the rock for us, God's people, His new covenant people who are making our way through the wilderness. Common graces, first of all, which make life sweeter or at least more bearable. Life's not as tough as it could be. But more than that, graces which belong to salvation. Graces like fellowship with God Himself. How wonderful it is to be in right relationship with the Father. How wonderful it is to have the Spirit living within us and testifying that we are God's children. How great it is to have Christ with us by His Spirit in fulfillment of that promise that He made. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is eternal life. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That starts now. And that's manna. And that's quail. And that's water from the rock in the midst of this wilderness. Then there's the brotherhood of the church. The sisterhood of the church. What a blessing it is to be known and to be loved, to have traveling companions as we make our way through the wilderness. Then there are the means of grace, singing and preaching and praying and the Lord's Supper and baptism and so forth. And the Spirit who makes them effectual to us. This place is like an oasis as we make our way through the wilderness. Just as we're getting thirsty, we find water to drink. Just as we're getting hungry, we find some bread. God has not left us alone in the wilderness, but as He led Old Covenant Israel through the wilderness, so He leads us through our wilderness. So we can say, with the psalmist not only give thanks to God as He is for great is His steadfast love towards us in creating and condescending to be in covenant with us not only give thanks to God as our Creator and great is His steadfast love in preserving this world until all of His promises shall come to pass 
but give thanks to God who is to us in the new covenant a redeemer who is to us something like what he was to Israel who takes vengeance upon our enemies who rescues us from bad situations who does the impossible for us and who as we make our way through the wilderness leads us if David under the old covenant could say all of this in Psalm 136 about God how much more can we in the new covenant say the same oh give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever as David rehearsed the steadfast love of the Lord so we ought to rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord from, from the public nature of the psalm he doesn't, he's not writing using pronouns like I and me but using pronouns like us and we this was a song to be sung congregationally from the public nature of the psalm then we can infer that it's good to rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord not only for us in order that we might remember who God is in order that day by day we might have the right grammar in our in the way that we think about our lives so not not so that God will save me I will obey today but because the steadfast love of the Lord is already mine in Christ. I will obey today. That's one benefit we gain ourselves from rehearsing the steadfast love of the Lord. And we gain the benefit of stirred affections and stronger motivations for our Christian lives from rehearsing the steadfast love of the Lord as we think about who He is as He is, who He is as Creator, who He is as Redeemer, we find joy in the Lord welling up in our souls. And as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We gain benefits, but from the public nature of the psalm, we infer that there is also public benefit to publicly rehearsing the steadfast love of the Lord. The first benefit is as it benefits us, it benefits others others can be reminded of just how great God is it's a way that we can love one another and care for one another we want people around us who remind us of what's important, who remind us of what matters, who remind us of the truth if you were in a sporting event Let's say, let's say a 100-meter sprint. And you came out of the blocks a little bit more slowly than you wanted to. You don't, want, you don't want your friend on the side to be like, give up now, it's no use. <laughs> but you want, you want people to be spurring you on in the way that you should go. Right? Or in a combat sport like boxing, you don't want the guys in your corner to be like, you'll never win. But you want them to, to coach you and to help you to look for ways that you can do what it is that you're aiming to do to speak those things to you and to help you forward. When we rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord to one another, who He is in Himself and who He is to us as Creator and Redeemer, we're like good friends, good coaches, good cornermen, helping one another to run the race that is set before us. So there's public benefit in that sense. And then there is simply the benefit of God receiving more of the glory that He is due. We sang earlier in the service. Psalm 96 together. Ascribe unto the Lord 
the glory due His name. This psalm, though it benefits us, it doesn't give us great thoughts of ourselves. This is a God-word psalm. It doesn't celebrate the strength of Israel. Quite the opposite. Verse 23 says, He remembered us in our low estate. He remembered us in our low estate. This psalm, though it benefits people, is not designed to excite grand impressions of people. This psalm, though it benefits people, is not meant to stir up hot affections for people. This psalm is designed to impress upon our hearts and upon our minds grand thoughts of God and to stir up our affections for God. So we ought to rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord, not only to ourselves, for ourselves. We ought to do that. But not only to ourselves, for ourselves. But we ought to, in conversation with one another, in our daily lives, publicly rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord for the benefit of others also. But not only that, not only for our benefit, and not only for the benefit of others, but for the glory of God. For the same purpose that the psalmist wrote Psalm 136. For that purpose, so we ought to rehearse also, like the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord. Namely, that God would receive the glory that He is due. So give thanks to the Lord, all of us, privately, privately and publicly. Give thanks to the Lord, all of us, for our benefit and for His glory. Give thanks to the Lord, all of us, for His steadfast love endures forever.